This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. And uh, I'm wondering this week how we all feel about death. And if uh, just my saying that makes you think, oh boy, this is going to be depressing, maybe I'll go and listen to something else, then this episode is especially for you because the inclination to direct our thoughts and energies away from death lies at the root of a lot of our social ills, as does the inclination to direct our thoughts and energies instead toward things that make us feel like we can live forever. So this is a conversation about death. It's also a conversation about sex. Two of our most persistent cultural obsessions, which means it's kind of weird to consider all the ways in which we avoid thinking about them. My guest today has been doing some really interesting work in this territory, and we're going to be talking about how the fear of death makes us dream of immortality, and how anything that disturbs that dream can meet with violent resistance. This inhibits our ability to love. It also spells bad news for women, insofar as women in patriarchal societies are traditionally associated with mortality. So that's all coming up. I'm talking this week with Hela Christie Milroy. She's a First Nations artist and playwright and theatre director based in Perth, WA. But she started out as a philosophy undergrad at the University of Western Australia. I have always had a very interesting relationship to philosophy. I started exploring philosophy in different religious worldviews um, before I went to university. And so taking in all that knowledge into an academic discipline was really challenging. I had to really deconstruct my way of thinking outside of this mystical into well, where they were pushing it was to be very sort of analytical and they really didn't want to kind of accept metaphysical concepts within the academic discipline. So that was my initial challenge that I had to overcome and I got through that and then developed a friendship with one of the lecturers there who had a a background with Freudian uh, psychology or psychoanalytic theory and so we would have a lot of discussions about what it is to be human um, and that pushed me into more of an existential area of philosophy which really wasn't what they were teaching us and so it wasn't until I had my honours thesis that I could explore those ideas for myself and get out of the discipline what I wanted and then recently I've moved away from the discipline of philosophy because I realised that I guess one of the reasons I studied philosophy was that I wanted to communicate to people. But as my journey with that progressed, I realised that the written word, it loses something. You don't have the tone of voice. The emotions aren't necessarily engaged with text on a page. And so moving into theatre recently has just given me that extra ability to communicate by speaking to the heart to those emotions as well as the intellect. So recently I just had a show called Conversations with a Fish at the Blue Room Theatre here in Perth as part of their Summer Nights program and it was actually a philosophical work. So the idea was that through the metaphor of the fish I examined various existential philosophies and had a vote at the end of each one of those so the audience would actually participate and and so it was a way of doing research as well to see where the sort of public opinion is on certain topics, whether we're in a dream or whether it's a simulation and what some of the implications of that might be, for instance. 
was one of the uh, philosophical questions that we raised and that was through the idea of two fish in a fishbowl swimming around um, contemplating the nature of reality. So that was the method of getting that through. I'm always interested in asking First Nations people for their perspective on what you might call the production of knowledge in a country like Australia, where certain discourses count as intellectual traditions, while certain other discourses get relegated to the status of traditional wisdom or or whatever it might be. And as a First Nations artist yourself, with an interest in Western traditions and in First Nations traditions of thought, how much convergence do you find between the two? I think it's very much up to the individual. However, that said, Western schools of thought tend to privilege the individual, whereas the First Nations schools of thought tend to focus more on community and connection, not just to other human beings, but to the natural world as well. So that's a massive difference in perceptions. And I think that is starting to change a little bit as well, where the Western schools of thought are starting to come now with a bit more of a inclusive attitude of sort of all of life rather than just this sort of isolated individual as an island unto itself. As far as epistemology goes and ways of thinking, I suppose you could say that traditionally the Western epistemologies, they've got a biblical uh, epistemology where that is the source of revelation and truth, whereas the Indigenous one is more part of that dreaming and being connected to that force that's accessed through the body but also through the mind. There's a union between the two realms, the transcendent realm and the physical realm. When you talk about a biblical epistemology in Western thought, in secular philosophy, what do you mean by that? So much of our Western society is based off of theology rather than philosophy. And I think this move towards the secular philosophy is more something that's emerged as an age of the Enlightenment, um, the age of reason coming in and taking precedence. So it's hard to divorce that from, from its heritage, this biblical heritage. I think that's so interesting. I, I don't think that gets talked about enough, the sort of the residue of theology that we find in so much of what passes for secular philosophy these days. Absolutely. Yes, I think it's still a part of of secular philosophy, even though it's something that's just a historical underpinning. Well, today we're talking about the relationship between the contemplation of death and our capacity to love. It was the topic of your uh, honours thesis, and it's a field of inquiry that you sort of stumbled into as the result of what you might call a spiritual experience, or or at least it wasn't the result of a typical academic sequence of events. Tell me how you got into it. Yeah, look, it came out of nowhere and it's a bit difficult to explain unless you practice meditation a lot. But, I mean, in short, I was just meditating and and I just put the question out there, what should I write my thesis on? And the word death just came to me. And I remember just sort of it sort of took me out of my meditation and I was just like, what? And it didn't really make any sense to me. There was no reason for me to explore death in a thesis, nothing. I had no deaths in the family, that I hadn't studied anything to do with death, I hadn't looked at any of those existential issues. So it would seem unwise to jump into a thesis without having any kind of academic backing because it meant that I'm going to have to do a lot more research than I would otherwise have to do. But 
I jumped in and the supervisor threw a whole bunch of philosophical texts at me about death, but none of it was existential. It was all just about uh, when does life end and like does death exist or not sort of thing and how do we find out at what point do we say something is is dead and how do we define that. And none of that really kind of captured my imagination or inspired me. But when I came across Beverly Clack's work, Sex and Death, that was so fascinating and that was really the beginning of the journey for me. Yeah, very interesting, uh, Beverly Clack's work. We'll, we'll certainly get on to that. But I, I want to get there by maybe starting with the notion that an unconscious fear of death inhibits our ability to love. I mean, this is something that you've written about. And it, it takes us into the realm of what's known as terror management theory. Tell me about terror management theory, first of all. What, what is that? So terror management theory is inspired by Ernst Becker, who had an interest in Freud's theory of the unconscious. And so Ernst Becker posited the idea that because of the human ability to self-reflect, and in particular on our mortal nature, that it gives rise to this innate and unconscious, often unconscious, sometimes very conscious, anxiety. And so terror management theory explores that theory of Ernst Becker with behavioural science in order to demonstrate how this unconscious fear of death or even a a conscious fear of death, how the fear of death basically motivates our conceptual and behavioural responses to the world in such a way that assists us to avoid coming to terms with the inevitability of death. So they're basically showing that when the concept of death comes to mind or not even necessarily comes to mind, sometimes it's more unconscious than that, when they call it mortality salience, when there's like a trigger of death, um, we tend to create or cling to concepts that help us to deny the inevitability of death, concepts that help us to feel like we're in control of fate and time, that we are significant. An, an easy way of sort of saying it is, is, is that these, these egoic concepts, this sense of, of our ego being somehow immortal and eternal and all-powerful and capable of being entirely conscious all the time, is triggered from this fear of death and that comes with problems. So terror management theory shows how when those concepts that we've protected ourselves with, that we've clung to in order to alleviate that stress and that anxiety of death, when they are confronted, we tend to want to denigrate or act aggressively towards whatever it is that's challenged that belief about ourselves as being somehow superior and in control to the forces of nature. And what are some of these constructs? What are some of these uh, immortality constructs that we produce to uh, head off our fear of death? They break it down into uh, literal immortality constructs and symbolic immortality constructs, which have direct symbolic constructs and indirect symbolic constructs. So a literal one uh, will basically be a system of belief that says if I do X, Y, and Z, and live up to that standard that I've set, then I'm going to achieve immortality. Alternatively, you might see this in transhumanism at the moment where it's a slightly different take to the traditional take, which is more of a religious one, 
it doesn't always have to be religious. Like with transhumanism kind of takes on a religious property, which says like, if I can merge my consciousness with the machine, I can live forever as a machine. I, I overcome the physical body. I overcome the flesh. Whereas a symbolic immortality concept will be where the individual believes they can achieve immortality by attaching themselves to some sort of symbol that's going to continue to exist after they pass away. For instance, a monument or if they achieve some great deed and take their place in history, this is a symbolic immortality because people will remember them. And then you also have indirect symbolic immortality beliefs where if you devote yourself to an ideology, say communism or capitalism, whatever it is, uh, that endures beyond your lifespan, then basically it gives you a structure to live a life which has meaning for you and personal significance. So you'll do everything that you can to propagate that worldview as your way of basically denying this anxiety that death has over us and um, that vulnerability that that evokes. So it gives us a sense of power and purpose and control. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Hela Christie Milroy. She's a playwright based in Perth, WA. And if you'd like to check out more about Hela, she has a website with all the info about her many past and present projects. Very interesting work that she's doing. And we'll put a link on The Philosopher's Zone website. You can also find us via the ABC Listen app. Okay, so we're talking about the fear of death and the various immortality constructs that we create and deploy in order to manage that fear. And I want to ask, what's the problem with having these immortality constructs? Why isn't it just perfectly okay that we try to avoid thinking about death and that we create certain cultural discourses that offer a symbolic kind of immortality? Having immortality constructs in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing in the sense that it does allow us to suppress this death anxiety, which can be crippling. You know, some people can't even leave their house because they're so afraid of what might happen to them. So in some sense, having these constructs, these worldviews, they can help us. However, the problem comes into being when those constructs don't deal with the unconscious motivations. So if it's not facing death and accepting death, and it's just running wild with this concepts that are sort of illusory and, and denying that fact of existence, then unconsciously what terror management theory has shown is it, is it just causes that impulse to act out against the other, to isolate them, silence them, hurt them. One example of this, they did a, a test with chilli sauce and they exposed one group to mortality triggers and then the control group they didn't expose and then they asked their participants to serve out a portion of chili sauce for everyone that came into the room and those that had a mortality trigger would give more hot sauce to people that they perceived as different to them as having a different worldview to them so it's a very tangible way in which they're measuring this so, yeah, you need to have an integrated worldview 
And that's something that traditionally the, the Western school of thought hasn't had. And so it leads to a sort of egoic individualism, which promotes sort of vanity and can be highly defensive. It's interesting. It makes me think of what happened a few years back when Yasmin Abdel-Majid made that Facebook post on Anzac Day, which wasn't in any way disrespectful, but the, the viciousness of the response was really telling. Like She was basically hounded out of the country. And what you're talking about perhaps goes some way toward explaining why a certain kind of person gets so outraged whenever someone challenges the dominant narrative about Anzac Day. Because it's a narrative that's all bound up with intensely nationalist sentiment, nationalism being a kind of immortality construct, and it's connected to uh, war, which also has its own rhetoric of immortality. Is this the kind of thing that you're getting at here? Absolutely. That's a great example. I mean, don't forget that the rhetoric that would have been used to get all of those men and those women to participate in that war in the first place would have tapped in to values and attitudes that make these people want to give up their life and it becomes the right thing to go and participate in this war. So there's a massive level of investment going on there and it's reaffirmed by a mass group of the population supporting and reinforcing that that symbol, the symbol of the state, the power of the state, the need to fight for the state and to die for the state. So, yeah, like disrespect towards that will trigger a lot of pain. So how do these immortality constructs serve as barriers to our capacity to love in particular? Well, because it's triggering these defensive responses, this urge to protect our ego, to protect those boundaries which we've uh, put on ourselves to become a significant person in the world, more significant than the other, this sort of sense of superiority or entitlement that we have, that inhibits our ability to love. Because anybody that challenges our worldview is automatically excluded from our place of love because we are coming from a place that is about vanity. It's about what I think, what I feel, and it's not about you or what you think or what you feel. Not about our relations. It's just about my relationship to what I hold as truth. So the other, anybody who doesn't reflect exactly what I think is excluded from my realm of love. So what you're proposing is that we should learn to overcome or eliminate these barriers, but how can we get around or neutralise these sorts of death-denying constructs that we've been talking about? Yeah, so through terror management theory and their experiments, they've shown that there's a few different ways. The way that I sort of gravitate towards is this idea of maintaining a state of awareness to the present moment by being open to the here and now in order to have an undiluted perception of what is and what is happening rather than a perception of events that's coming through the filter of how we see the world and then is forced to move through a bunch of stories that we have about something, a bunch of memories and all of this. So that can actually inhibit how much information we actually receive because we will see what we want to see. So if we're able to just maintain that state of awareness and be present to both our internal reality and what's being presented to us externally, we can have a greater appreciation of the truth of that situation and that can help us to have a relational conversation where it's not just people talking over each other or at each other. 
it can help with the listening. It brings to mind certain practices like meditation and also certain Buddhist philosophies of mindfulness, which are connected to the dissolution of ego, the dissolution of the self, which is itself a kind of annihilation. Is that how you see it? That, you know, there's a sense in which we overcome our fear of death by, by dying, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. So that's known as a symbolic death. And that's part of that process to find that state of awareness. I will say, though, that finding that state of awareness isn't necessarily the end goal either. One of the problems that Buddhism presents is this dispassionate approach to life. Although it does come around again, I think in its early stages where people aren't kind of mature with those ideas yet, it can be a little bit problematic uh, for people's relationships with one another. So you can actually move beyond this killing the ego, the symbolic death of the ego, and move into like a reconstruction of the ego and a healthy ego. And I think that's where Beverly Clack sort of was moving towards, was finding out how do we reconstruct our vision of the world in order to have harmonious relationships with one another in a way that's not pessimistic towards the physical world. And while Buddhism does, after you've gone through that process of dissolving the ego, it does move to a place where you're looking after the world. In its early stages, it's all about sort of transcending the physical body and she points out that that's very problematic for women Right, of course. And, and this is, okay, so we, we've dropped Beverly Clack's name a few times. Let's, <laughs> let's get on to talking about her. I mean, she, she has a feminist perspective on all of this. She believes that we need to contemplate not just our mortality, but our sexuality as well. What's the outline of her thinking there? She argues that we need to contemplate both sex and death because they're both features which define our existence as human beings and that sex in particular when we reflect upon it, reveals that we are social animals and that we are vulnerable to loss. But rather than try to fortify our boundaries and separate ourselves in order not to suffer, we should actually accept that our vulnerability to loss is what makes our connections to others valuable and it helps to foster a sense of appreciation. And in this way, we can build more harmonious relationships with one another and increase the ability to love. Whereas when we just focus on death, there's a tendency to want to see life as meaningless and it's something we're all just kind of doing on our own. You know, we die alone, even though we can be surrounded, it's, it's our own personal journey. And so that can make us want to sort of transcend this physical world and overcome it and, and seek enlightenment in ways that sees the physical world as problematic, something to be overcome and controlled. And this is, as she points out, very problematic for women who are often associated with that physical realm. Yeah, and feminist philosophy taken as a whole is very ambivalent about that association, isn't it? Because there are feminist thinkers who who celebrate that association of women with death and sexuality and the physical world, and then there are other feminist philosophers for whom the association is very problematic. Where does Beverly Clack go with all this? Yeah, it's a really good point to make. Like People think that of they hear the word feminism and they think that it's one thing and it's not. It's more accurately termed feminism. It's just women speaking from their standpoint as women. And so there's still an individual point of view that's coming across in any feminist philosophy. And with Beverly Clack, she makes this point about 
the Western construct of male and female as being inaccurate and she sees that construct as basically one that says woman is loving and caring and male is more the sort of fighter and the aggressor and that that's the balance of the sexes and she says that this is inaccurate and it also robs women of their power. She traces it through philosophy too as well, doesn't she? She does. She shows plenty of examples of what she terms dualist philosophies and these are philosophies which have been predominantly uh, put forth by male philosophers who seek to basically overcome mortality and find their sense of enlightenment, their connection to the eternal through putting down the physical world and the processes of that and women get caught up in that because she's associated with the physical body primarily because of her biological function of procreation. When a woman gives birth, it can kill her. She's very vulnerable at that state. So because of this, men have associated her with an animal, less than human, less capable of finding self-realisation because she's trapped in this embodied existence through that process. So she actually becomes a trigger to the male then. Her, her, just even her existence becomes a, a mortality trigger because he, she reminds him of his own animality, his own vulnerability, his own fleshliness. So woman becomes this object to be controlled. Right, and sexual attraction is one of those triggers as well, isn't it? It's, it's a sort of a reminder for the male of, of animal nature, which, and of course animal nature is, is tied to earthly nature and to death, right? Absolutely, that's right. So, yeah, so if a man desires a woman, which is part of the course of nature, otherwise we wouldn't be here, um, that confronts him with his own animality, with his own vulnerability because it pushes him into this state of consciousness where he realises I don't have full control over my body. I am not as in control and as invulnerable as I wish to see myself. And so woman becomes a threat, becomes the other. So in terms of terror management theory, it puts her in a very vulnerable position because, because of that otherness and this challenge to this sense of immortality, power and control. She's the one that's getting that hot sauce, that larger portion of chilli sauce. Hey, like Christy Milroy. She lives in Perth. She's a First Nations artist and playwright and theatre director, and we'll put more details on our website. That's The Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us via the Radio National website or the ABC Listen app. And that's it for another week. Next week, a conversation about breakage and rupture, those moments in the life of an individual or a society where we come to a point of crisis and have to kind of put ourselves back together again. And of course, COVID has brought us all to that point in one way or another, and we're going to be talking about that. But we'll also be hearing from someone who has an interest in the philosophy of rupture and for whom the philosophy all got very real last year as the result of a serious accident. It's a great conversation, and I hope you can join me, David Rutledge, right here in the Philosopher's Zone next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.